Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 516. God, that's a lot. And we've got a hell of a good one for you today. This is a really interesting one because this is one that I almost turned down and then we got like five minutes into recording and I was so pleased I didn't. Let me explain a little bit. I'm swamped at the moment. Doing a weekly podcast isn't easy, like when you're busy. So in really busy periods, I'll kind of go for guests who I either know well already, like personally, or I'm very knowledgeable on already just because it reduces the amount of research time, right? But this one came to me from my mate Molly, and um, I think Molly's great. So um, I was like, okay, like, let's give this a look. And I'll, again, I almost said, look, I'm going to Spain and I'm going to France. I can't fit this in, but I said, look, if we can squeeze it in, let's make it work. And to be honest, as soon as I started doing the research, I realised it was a good choice. And then I said, five minutes into the episode, I realised it was a great choice. Um, I'm joined today by Dr Nishant Joshi, and he's a hell of a person. We'll get into all of it, but he's the front man of a kind of punk band, which obviously is always going to appeal to me. They're called Kill the Icon, Um, and... you know, when you've got albums or EPs called things like Your Anger is, is Rational, you know if you've heard this podcast before that that's going to appeal to me. <laughs> but um, Nishant was one of the first or the first kind of whistleblower on the lack of PPE in the NHS during the pandemic. And his story's amazing because it kind of started with, you know, there was negative backlash within the public within, you know, the work environment, all of these things, the government, all these things. But then it turned out to be a really key point in the pandemic and genuinely sent ripples all over the the world. Like, it's mad. It's a mad story and we're going to get right into it. So I hope you enjoy this. I have to mention on these ones, you know, we have people like Stephen Fry and Louis Theroux, James Acaster a few weeks back, John Ronson just last week. And those kind of names sell themselves as such. Do you know what I mean? People will be hunting for them. But names like Anish and Joshi don't necessarily have people who are just scrolling, go, oh, I need to give that one a, a listen. But they do need to give this one a listen. I'm still very much kind of off s- s- social media to a, a pretty large degree. So I really rely on you guys spreading word of mouth. So number one give this one a listen and number two shout about it because I think you're gonna hear something really special Uh, I'm excited to see Nishant in more and more podcasts as time goes by because just a hell of a talker and a hell of a person so yeah this was a very very exciting one we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com we've just done our first restock in a year or two years of the We May Not Be For You and That's Fine sunglasses. Um, they always fly out, always sell out, so grab them while you can. We won't be doing another restock this year at least. And we're brought to you by patreon.com forward slash Pip. You can go and support the podcast there. And twitch.tv forward slash Pip yo or Scroobius Pip, I don't know. Um, I'm back kind of more regularly on Twitch. Some of you may have seen, I kind of recorded and ended up uploading to YouTube a new song that I 
performed on a DJ set on Twitch. So give Twitch a look. It's not as if you're not already familiar. It's not as scary as 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 you might think it is. But yeah, there's loads of fun stuff over there and loads of stuff in the back catalogue for you to view on demand so you can just have loads of free content should you want it. And let's get into this episode, right? We discuss music, we discuss politics, we discuss activism, and we discuss the pandemic, and we discuss the pressures of standing up for what you believe in and the importance of doing so and how we can feel powerless but this is a real story of how one voice can make a difference so yeah let's get into it this is the distraction pieces podcast episode 516 with dr nishant joshi listen to your podcast for like literally since the start but i was never clear exactly what you wanted to be called <laughs> yeah it really varies i've got a few people dear to me who call me scroobs or scroob zane low in the early days always would call me Scroob. but yeah pip tends to be the most common but i can't be too selective on it mate i've given myself a stupid name so i can't <laughs> really be too picky on 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 how people use it but um yes well i mean i'm calling that a start. I'm I'm joined today by Nishan Joshi. How are you? Excellent, Pip. Really, really glad to be here. As I was just just mentioned here, I think a lot of your guests will be listening to your podcast and as maybe casual listeners. But I have to say, I give myself credit for being one of probably your first ever subscribers. Probably in your first hundred ever subscribers. Oh, man, I think that was back in like probably coming up to ten years now, right? Yeah, yeah, it's and, getting there. And I remember specifically listening to your first ever podcast episode with Russell Brand. Yeah. And you guys were talking about the trues and 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 power structures and things like that. And I thought, hang on, that's really, really relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, well, kind of, I guess a lot of that is what we're going to be talking about. Because I do want to talk about your music, because I think it's relevant to the wider conversation as well, because of... Of the of the lyrics, but your wider story is a big part of why I felt we should sit down and have this kind of in depth conversation. So, where best to start? I guess. Do you want to kind of tell my <laughs> listeners kind of who you are and and what you do, your your profession and your side profession as such? <laughs> sure. So, I'm Doctor Nishant Joshi, and I'm a doctor by day musician by night, and sometimes doctor by night as well. I, I'm a trained GP, so so currently I'm, I'm working as a GP. I'm working between England and Gibraltar. So actually, I recently moved over to Gibraltar, which is where I'm speaking from today, oh, um, and, and, and working here for a question mark period of time, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, so that's the, the short story. The slightly longer story involves me being a, a whistleblower a few years ago during during COVID and then taking the government to court. Yeah, a, 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 a really important time. And it was, um, it's weird how the pandemic feels like it was yesterday and also 10 years ago. It's, yeah. such, it's such a strange thing. Every time I talk to someone and say, oh, we haven't caught up in ages, I'm kind of 
this count in the fact that there's at least a two-year gap in the... Like, I'm thinking of ages yeah. as in a year, but then there's this two-year gap where we didn't catch up with anyone. So I guess before we, we get to that, what was your route into your career path? What what made you decide to go down that route? And um, yeah, yeah, how did you end up in a position to be a key figure in that whole mess, as it were? Well, again, the, the the slightly longer story would include my parents kind of uh, having a typical refugee story, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and they they came to to the UK in the nineteen seventies from Kenya and Uganda, respectively, and then they kind of built themselves up in, in in the UK to work as pharmacists, and the whole thing was they always wanted a better life for for me and my sister. So their idea of a, a better life for my, my sister and I was to to make us go to good schools and then become doctors. Because as a doctor, they insisted that we'd always have a job anywhere we mm. went in the world, even if we were displaced. We didn't, they kept on saying, we got kicked out of one country. Who knows when these guys are going to turn their back on us as well. So, so interesting. It's, it's something I've never really considered, but one of the earliest professions in this country, obviously for rebuilding reasons in the early days, but one of the earliest professions that had a great racial and cultural diversity has always been doctors and nurses and it never occurred to me that it is that fact that whatever country you're in if you're trained in that area you will have work you will be needed so yeah that makes perfect sense as as soon as you said that I feel like an idiot for going all right that's (laughs) that's the obvious reason there yeah I mean it's only one of the reasons and I'm still trying to investigate it myself and really come to terms with the fact as to why doctors are perceived in a certain way and why it's kind of culturally accepted that if you go to your GP, then there'll be a doctor who might have trained abroad. Whereas, Mm. for example, in in the other stuff we we might discuss, like the music industry and stuff, people get really surprised if I go up on stage as a punk musician. They don't get surprised when they open my door and they say, ah, there's Dr. Joshi in my GP's office. So that's something I'm kind of grappling with right now, actually. Can I, can I ask what were some of your kind of early musical influences or what was your your, your, your route into punk? And I have a reason f- f- for this. It might not work, but, <laughs> but let's hear what you've got to say. Uh, so I, I think probably the turning point was when I was 16 and 17 and, and we had a, a teacher called Mike Sachs and he, he was a big fan of Slayer and he was a bass guitarist as well. And uh, he was actually on a uh, secondment sort of thing from America. So he was coming over to the UK to do some teaching. So he taught us from a term. And I just thought he, he was the coolest guy ever. And, and he was, and he still is. And uh, he kind of inspired me to, to play bass. And I got into kind of indie bands around that time as I was growing up, like Interpol, New, um, The Strokes, the New York sort of scene. Then I kind of developed more into Radiohead, Queens of the Stone Age. But I've always just been a, a huge, huge bass guitar fan and writing lots of songs on, on guitar as well. So I've been in, in quite a few bands over the last few years. And the latest band that I'm in, Kill the Icon, is, is the first proper, proper punk band that I've, I've been yeah. in. Yeah, it's really interesting because that whole New York scene was so influenced by the punk scene that came came yeah. before them. And it, it fell into a lot of the kind of indie realm in this country, but it's like yeah. it's so clear their roots. The reason it came to mind is you said people are surprised when you jump up on stage in a punk band. <laughs> and the band that got me into punk were your Green Days and your Offsprings and you kind yeah. of pop punk at that time, but the early form of it. So it was far more punk influence. And 10 minutes before we started this, I watched a clip on Instagram that's doing the rounds that genuinely put tears in my eyes because there was a band 
cover in Basket Case by Green Day in a little pub in London. And Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day was walking past. So he got up on stage and sung the song with them. And the look in their eyes as they're just covering something <laughs> like there's a moment ago. Why is someone getting up on stage and then going, oh shit, what? And it's just one of the most, it's genuinely such a heartwarming <laughs> thing to see how music wow. can do that. And over generations as well. It's a, yeah, it's a fascinating one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, for me, I mean, as loads of people, music has kind of soundtracked the good parts of my life and the bad parts of my life. Yeah. I mean, including that thou shall not kill. I remember I, I, remember I was oh, doing yeah. my, I think I was doing, doing my A-levels around that time. And that was the time of MTV2, really. That was, yeah. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was all over there. So, I mean, I, I remember we, we everybody was, was really, really into that. And it just kind of punctuates periods of your life I mean just like yeah. when I remember just randomly I mean when I remember about when my grandma died not longer after that to be honest quite suddenly I mean the band that I was listening to was Duran Duran I was exploring their back catalogue and yeah. so every time I hear Duran Duran I, I start crying because I just think yeah. something like randomly like a view to a kill <laughs> like yeah. it's the song that that, that was happening in, in in my mind at that stage so i i get really really emotional if i ever hear view to a kill from duran duran <laughs> it's mad isn't it i love those attachments that we have to songs that aren't even necessarily related to what the song's about i've got numerous songs where there's probably w- one line in that song that related to a particular heartbreak i had in my teens or whatever else and that's what that song means to me. And then you hear the actual meaning behind it, and it's about yeah. the parents or whatever else. Like, no, 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 no. That one line. It's about the relationship that I was in. Let's yeah. let's not get confused. It's it's one of the reasons I try not to over-explain any of my lyrics because I do. I'm a big b- believer in the fact that when you put it out in out into the world, what I intended to an extent doesn't matter anymore. It's 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 what people get from it and take from it and how they interpret it and what it means in their world. And as the soundtrack to their life, because they're the lead character, it's their soundtrack, you know. It's you know, so it's a, yeah, it's an important thing there to hand that over at points. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that in, in the different bands that I've written for, I think my view on lyrics has kind of evolved according to each band that I've been in. And yeah. I mean, with the other bands that I've, I've been, I've, I feel like I have been a bit more poetic, a bit more vague. Whereas in the latest band that I've, I'm, I'm writing songs for, it really is. A, a very strict narrative, which I don't think is open to interpretation. <laughs> I think I think it's a, a real kind of storytelling narrative that I think there's only really one definition for. Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, it's, it's something I had on my list to talk about a bit later on when we've got through your story a bit more. But you know how the podcast goes all over the place. <laughs> You've heard how my brain works. So, I mean, I, I, I think it can be really important to talk about the causes that you're passionate about in your l- lyrics. And I've always kind of held this belief. It used to confuse me when people like, for example, a Coldplay would be yeah. so political in their interviews and yeah. then I'd hear their their music and it it wouldn't be political at all and, like, yeah. at that point. And it was like, well, maybe 100,000 people will see that interview. M- millions of people will hear these songs. Yeah. So if you can get what you're trying to speak about into the songs. Again, not shoehorn it in, you know, making it still accessible and enjoyable. Then it's really important to get it in the, in the lyrics and in the songs, right? Because that's where it gets into people's heads and breaks through. Absolutely. And and that's why my fascination with 
power structures and power imbalances really, really comes in because especially as artists, most of us, unless you're really born into to wealth or of the the famous son of a famous band member, not mentioning anybody, mm. Bono and Inhaler, <laughs> then, <laughs> then then you you kind of ascend through a journey of going from no privilege to a journey of a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like a lot of artists really start off in the way of saying like, okay, little old me, the world is against me, like we all do, basically. And then essentially, as they climb up the ladder, there seems to be a sense, especially in the music industry, I, mean, I, th- I think it's across all industries, but especially I've seen in the music industry, people say, oh, I was never like that. I, I got here the easy way. <laughs> like, it was quite easy yeah. for me. What One day I just played my song and Billy Joe Armstrong walked into a pub and that yeah, was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he signed yeah. me to his record label. And there just seems to be this feeling of, that a lot of people pull the ladder up and actually fail to understand that a lot of music industry is is really about chance, but it's also about privilege as well. Mm-hmm. And that to kind of rebalance things and to restructure things, we need to be looking at things from an equitable point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's something that kind of upsets me, especially in, in the punk scene, the guitar scene, where people are supposedly singing about, oh, well, fuck the system, that sort of thing. But when they actually get to the point where they're in a, a position to change the system they don't even look in their review rear view mirror let alone stop to to pick up people they really are kind of hogging the microphone and as you say i think coldplay is, is maybe a good example but if you can be political in your interviews why not use that in your songs and actually to not use that songs it almost feels like dishonest it feels like a lie of omission to still be singing about your girlfriend and stuff when you've been in this business for 20 years i mean look fine you can still write a pop song and stuff but why not try to write about something profound that has the potential to change? Because your platform is a million times bigger than my platform is ever going to be. Your voice is filling up the whole room right now. And I, I think that a lot of artists are, are, are kind of um, doing everybody a disservice by kind of failing to adjust their narrative as, as they evolve through their careers and acquire more privilege. And 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 to be clear, it's like... Some of the most beautiful songs ever written are protest songs or are yeah. on specific subjects. So I agree with you completely. But equally, I'm not saying, oh, you have to s- suddenly get really serious and write these boring songs. It's like, no, they can still be mm. that. I definitely feel being Self Esteem's album recently has got some songs on that are about the abuse within this industry, essentially. Mm. And they're some of the best pop songs. You, you'll ever hear but being in a room with other people experiencing that is so powerful and similarly yeah. just plucking things kind of unplanned watching Billy Bragg play to have and to have not and talk about the political imbalance in this country while surrounded by a load of other people is one of the most emotional sing-along shout-along be angry together moments and that's just as rich as you know a good chorus on a love song or whatever else you, do you know what I mean, it doesn't. It's, yeah. It doesn't have. I think there is a belief that oh, it's a bit too heavy and all that kind of thing. It's like, well, no. It's it's a beautiful thing to bring people together in a multitude of emotions, whether that be anger, anger, sadness, love, joy, all of these things. If we get to share them in a crowd at a gig or just on our headphones, it's a powerful feeling. Yeah, absolutely, Pip. And music does have that kind of transformative ability as well, and, and that's why I'm exploring it so so much as a, as a medium of, of protest specifically as well. Because yes. I think that 
you kind of have two aspects for for creating change in society. Uh, one is through a political and legal sort of complex, which is extremely slow, extremely boring, extremely time consuming, and extremely expensive as well. And you need to be inc- have an incredible team of incredibly well educated people who, once again, are really expensive as as well. Unless you're lucky enough to get some pro bono sort of advice here and there. And the other way to do it is cultural, actually. So yeah. cultural change as well. So you've got that sort of I view it as a sort of pincer attack to to try and make structural changes. And I do feel that musicians of today do things you know, almost on a performative sort of level, to be honest, whereas it's quite easy to be very superficial in songs and, you know, just write one song about that, that <laughs> write one song about that time so a, a policeman said something offhand to you and then kind of brand, rebrand yourself as a sort of edgy protest sort of person was really personally both as an artist and as a fan and as a citizen what i'm looking for is somebody who gets their hands dirty who's doing the work i want people to be doing the work and that doesn't just involve i mean just writing songs is, is a part of it but it's it's not the the whole bit mm. well let's talk a little bit about doing the work cuz during the pandemic you were the first frontline doctor to go public with concerns about safety for workers. And it's really interesting because I think so much went on in the pandemic where, again, I think there's a lot where there's just people that don't know what to do and how to run run things. And that's understandable. But there's a lot that was also willful negligence. I know I have a family member. I'm I'm being careful on what I say here (laughs) because I can't whistleblow on someone else's behalf. (laughs) I have a family member who worked in the Royal Mail, and they basically ended up walking out because there were no precautions being taken. At this particular point, in this particular sorting office, there were precautions as you arrive in the building or all these other things, but when you were in the room sorting, I think you were all together, all amongst each other, all passing each other letters here and there. And my family member was disgusted at that. And, And when they got COVID, I believe, they were kind of almost nagged to come in anyway. Mm. And it's like, well, do you know how we're working? <laughs> like, this yeah. isn't acceptable at all. And we're going to everyone's front door and posting things. In When people are in, in lockdown, we are breaching their lockdown. Yeah. So the fact that we're not being careful is outrageous. And So witnessing that and not seeing anything done about it. And again, I do also want to kind of reiterate that there was a lot of, businesses, small companies, independent companies, all sorts of stuff that particularly in the start, this is unprecedented. No one knows what we're meant to be doing. No one knows how we're meant to handle this. So mistakes will have been made. But you were speaking out at a point where it felt that this is no longer mistakes are being made. This is dangerous situations are being chosen. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is where kind of my my parents' story and their influence on on me comes in because my my whole life has kind of been framed and dictated as you must obey the system, otherwise the system is going to punish you. You must keep in line, otherwise you'll be punished. Mm. And so as a doctor until that point, I think I've been qualified as a doctor for about six, seven years working mainly in, in, in hospital until that point in February, March 2020. And my whole time as a doctor was pretty much, I was doing what I was told I wasn't really upsetting anybody or I, I was just sticking to protocols. I was being a good doctor. I was being 
good son. That's what I felt. Mm-hmm. So yeah. pre- pre- pretty, pretty, pretty straight laced. And I just want to get, keep my head down and get get through things quietly. But in February 2020, I was working in A and E, and that was a time when my wife was pregnant with our first child as well, and she was six months pregnant. She's a doctor as well, and she was going to work, and she was saying, "Look, actually, I don't have any PP, and the situation for PP is changing every day." And I was an A and E doctor, and I, I was volunteering to see COVID patients as as well, and for example, the patients who were coming on flights from China and Italy, they were being isolated in, and we were wearing kind of spacesuits at, at that time. Then one day the spacesuits went away. And I thought, hang on, yesterday you told me that we needed spacesuits for COVID. Mm. <laughs> you tell, you're telling me that a surgical mask is okay. And even then we don't really need to use it. And then some days five or six patients are, are being put in a, in a small room. And then it just seems like nothing's really adding up here. And so I just started to question everything. And I think one of the most important points that I've, I've ever learned is basically just a basic aspect of, of journalism and interviewing podcasting is just asking why, what mm-hmm. is the truth? You just keep on asking what is the truth? And in medicine, it's such an important thing and politics is su- such an important thing because things as we've seen over the past few years are so easily obfuscated by charming type of people who use fancy mm-hmm. and flowery language to deceive the masses really. And that's unfortunately what's happened on, on a really grand scale over the past few years. And this is not just limited to COVID, but I mean, talking about the last 10, 15 years of government rule as, as well, even somehow managing to stay in power while, while watching Grenfell burn, watch, while watching libraries being demolished and these sorts of things. So, I mean, it even goes down to that sort of granular societal level. I mean, the, 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 the power of exactly what you're saying was never clearer than during COVID because the thing that got me was hearing people say, you know, our government have tried their best or it's a tough situation. Mm. Like no one knew how to handle this or no one could have handled it better. And it was a rare situation where it was like, no, that's provably wrong because it's happening all over the world. So we can look at other governments and other societies and other cultures that did handle it better. So the usual excuse of, and again, again, it is all through flowery language or particularly in Boris's era, charm and yeah. and, and bumblingness that people would l- let them off of a lot of things by saying, well, you know, they're only human, people yeah. make mistakes. Whereas I said, the pandemic was a powerful one for me because you could go, no, look at how New Zealand handled it. Look at how Australia, like, look, at you could pick so many different countries that had such better results across the board, um, if we're looking at economic, the the reduction of economic impact, the minimalising of money wasted, the supply of aid to frontline workers, the death toll, the acceptable death toll, an insane thing to be comparing um, in this day and age. But on all of those metrics, our government failed appallingly. And no amount of flowery language should be able to cover that up, but it kind of still works to an extent. Yeah, and and this is why it was so important for me to get the truth out at that point. And I felt that I really had the pressure of the whole country on my shoulders for for a few days, to be honest. I I was lucky I went to an international medical school, and so I'd been keeping in touch with a lot of my colleagues 
um, who are doctors in, in Far East Asia and basically across the world and saying, how are you guys responding to COVID? How seriously are you guys taking it? And my friend in Japan said that whole old building was being isolated as a respiratory doctor. I thought, okay, that sounds like a, a quite sensible thing. So you're segregating COVID patients in an entirely separate building. That sounds like a logical and, and, and sensible thing. Why aren't we doing that? <laughs> okay, what's my friend in Australia doing? Okay, we're doing something similar. We're preparing for this in this way. Why aren't we doing that? My friend in Norway said, okay, we're, we're, we're really well prepared. I think we've got a slightly less dense population, so probably going to be okay, but we are seeing a few, a few cases. If we do say anything, then we're going to address it in this way, this way, this way. Now look at what we're doing. I'm just thinking, it's an absolute mess. It's absolute chaos. And so one day I just said, look, this is crazy. We've got Boris telling us that he's still shaking hands with, with patients in hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was being gaslighted by my own hospitals, uh, hospital department. And I was being told that, that if I was wearing a mask uh, in the A&E general area, then I was scaring the patients. I was actually told wow. to, at the beginning of, of, of March 2020, I was told to take off my mask because I was scaring patients. And it, it was really, really clear to me that a lot of people were just doing what they're told. And then I kind of compare that to, to my own life trajectory and just said, have I been doing what I've been, what I've been told my whole life? And really any chance that I've had to, to rebel and actually speak the truth has just kind of been constrained by a system which puts so much strain and pressure on you that makes you fear the consequences of speaking the truth rather than the consequences of staying silent and staying in line. So I stepped out of line and on one fateful day, <laughs> I, I, I DM'd the, the Guardian journalist, Carol Cadwallader, because she was taking a really keen interest in, in COVID. And I said, look, this is going to sound crazy, but I think this is going to hit us like a tidal wave. And that was a time we weren't locked down or anything. The pubs mm. were open. People were carrying around as normal. And I was still seeing sick COVID patients. And I was thinking to myself, this is, this is absolutely mad. So I gave an interview to her at a cafe in, near that Victoria in London, uh, on a Sunday morning and I spent the rest of the day just absolutely just as a bit of a nervous wreck because really what I was doing is putting my career at risk because if yeah, I'd spoken out and it turned out that actually COVID was nothing and that everything had turned out okay I'd have been viewed like a madman for the rest of my life I would have been persona non grata in medicine I would have been referred up the ladder and I, my license was at serious serious risk it would have ruined my life entirely and I know how the medical establishment works. I know how political establishment works. They would have really worked hard to, to make an example out, mm. out, out, of, out of me. And you only need to view the example of other NHS whistleblowers, actually. And I, people have called me a whistleblower over the past few years. I'm actually not really comfortable with that. I feel that it's the system which is at fault. And so to brand yeah. somebody as telling the truth as a whistleblower, it almost carries a sort of negative connotation to it. But... I spent the, the, that Sunday as a nervous wreck. Then I went to the hospital in, in, in the evening and I was so nervous that I couldn't even drive to the hospital. My wife drove me, even though she, she was six months pregnant. <laughs> we mm. drove along the motorway to the hospital and she said she, she was really a, a rock for me. And I, I was telling her, I think this whole thing is going to go to shit. Why don't you fly to, to your parents in Gibraltar? Because I can't keep you safe here. I told her that. Mm. I, ca- I cannot keep you safe wow. here. Why don't you take the next flight to Gibraltar in the morning? Because in Gibraltar, they were talking about locking down early. They, they, were, they were making the moves which seemed sensible. So I said, okay, at least stay there. It seems like you can be protected. I mean, again, just we, <laughs> we're an island. We had all the, th- all, all the ability to, 
to lock down really quickly and really easily. That's far harder in bordered countries. Mm. Um, so again, we could have, we were at an advantage in many ways, but it's because of the, as you say, Boris downplaying it. And again, it's interesting to hear you were told that your mask, you wearing a mask would scare people. It feels like that was a bit of the government kind of line of like, yeah. we don't want to panic anyone. And I get that, but not at the cost of safety, not at the cost of the basics that are required to keep us safe. I don't want to panic anyone, but I do want to let you know that there's a lion in the room. Like, like you, you wouldn't just not mention the lion in the room because you don't want anyone to panic because the greater risk is the lion in the fucking room. There's risk greater than panic. So, yeah, I, I guess how was that then when it all did start to blow up as expected, as projected, I was going to say predicted, but accurately projected yeah. by experts. It's not some kind of magic, will it, won't it? It was quite clearly l- l- laid out long in advance, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how was it when it did start to go crazy as someone with, you know, as you say, a wife that's six months pregnant, yeah. you've, you've actively, you know, spoken up how was that period for you because again i i would imagine just someone working in a hospital at that period a single person with no uh, responsibilities it would be terrifying it would be hard to sleep it would be hard to think but <laughs> when you add these extra things on top that must have been a hell of a time well i, I think the, the key thing here was that i'd been really, really trying to plan this out for, for a good period of, of days and weeks. And I've, I feel that genuinely my life was was leading up to this moment. Mm. So I feel that I, I was really, really well prepared for it. So nothing took me by surprise. And I knew, and I discussed it with my wife all the time, and I said, look, if this happens, then the action, the action is going to be this, the reaction is going to be this. My boss is going to react in this way. The head of, of the department is going to react in this way. If it gets to, to wider media presence, public are going to react in this way, the politicians are going to react in this way. Then we kind of try to pan out and predict the next few weeks. And it, it, that made everything happen past a lot more stress-free in my mind because I was mm. really, really, really prepared. And one of the best ways that we were preparing to, to handle things over those coming weeks was actually by watching the TV show The Thick of It on repeat. Mm-hmm. Do you remember yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, I love The Thick yeah. of It, Yeah. So every single episode of The Thick of It, we watched it over and over and over again because it was back in my mind, however ridiculous it sounds, I knew that these guys were absolute cowards. They were clueless yeah. and they would be behaving in certain ways. And one of the best things that, um, one of the best examples was there's an episode in The Thick of It where Malcolm Tucker, Peter Cavaldi's character, is, is, mm-hmm. is trying to convince uh, w- one of the MPs and, and his aides about children with special needs and and special needs schools. And he said, oh, well, my expert says this. Well, look, it's fine. I'll just find another expert who says something else. And that's basically what the government were doing in this in this case. Mm-hmm. And what, they, what all governments do is that they're very happy to find an expert to cherry pick evidence to backfit their own pre-existing narrative. And that's how they exploit us. And that's another example of how power dynamics are, are, are really easily exploitable with with all of our human biases as well. And that's yeah. something I was really trying to preempt as well. It's steering into confirmation bias, yes. right? They've decided their policy and yeah. now they have to get the experts to back it out rather than listening to the experts and deciding their policy off the back of that. And I mm. think 
it shouldn't be surprising at all because I think it's how we work in society. Like we see it on social media all the time. If, if we're on one side of an argument, we're dismissing everything on the other side of an argument as nonsense or as fake news or whatever else. And we're waiting for that one thing that confirms what we want the truth to be. And then we jump on that with everything we've got. And it's that's no way to to run things. Oh, you know? 100%. And this is something that... I think I'm shamefully late to the party, but I mean, just learning a lot about cognitive biases as well over the mm-hmm. past over the past few years, and just thinking thinking to myself, like now I feel that I've got a very rational path to to all of my decision making, and this is especially relevant as as a GP as well. And explaining that to to patients in terms of how we go about making decisions in medicine is really really important. And it's just something I wish I was taught in school and is never, ever taught in school <laughs> about biases. And is one of the most basic things about, about making every sort of decision in life. And I've got two daughters now, young daughters. And when they get to an age where they can kind of grasp that concept, I'll be explaining that, that to them as one of the most important things, to be honest. It's important. It's, there's no point being being good at numeracy and literacy if, if you're not uh, literate in decision making, right? Yeah, and that's key. And to go off on another classic tangent here, um, the medical industry is a fascinating one and you will have experienced this. So I'm interested to hear how you feel on it all because it is something that is constantly evolving on a research level, but not necessarily constantly evolving on a practical level because the people who are higher up and experienced and experience is really key Mm. because of what you guys do, because of the stress, because of the pressure... But those who are higher up are generally older who were taught a certain way and often have a reluctance to evolve to new and more improved ways. So you may have younger doctors who have the latest training that are being kind of having their reins pulled back slightly by older doctors who have experience, which is crucial and amazing, but don't necessarily have the current, you know, the most modern meta for these things so how do you find that as an industry that's so quickly evolving research wise but not necessarily being put into practice as quickly yeah i I think again i keep on harping back to power dynamics really i think that's an important 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 thing about how we go about making those sorts of decisions and living through those sorts of experiences as well because as you said older more experienced doctors generally tend to have jobs kind of guaranteed almost for for life really Whereas new doctors tend to really tread on eggshells. Again, it's, it's quite similar in a lot of industries as well. But until you really, really find your feet and you feel safe, mm-hmm. because as, as a doctor, it's not really so, so much of a transferable career in that if you want to start from scratch somewhere else, people do do it. And obviously right now, a lot of people are leaving medicine, but it's not that something else that you can kind of sidestep into uh, another career particularly easily. And obviously with medicine, it's a six-year degree and then lots and lots of training after that as well. And even before that, during your teenage years, you're just studying and studying and studying. So once you get to the point where you've given up so much of it, uh, given up so much of your life or a career, it, you're into kind of sunk cost territory, right? So, yeah, yeah. so you don't really want to do anything to compromise that, which is, again, why if I go back to the way that I, I was speaking up and my wife was speaking up in February, March 2020, that's why <laughs> that's why it was so critical for me because I thought I would have to explain to my parents I completely fucked up my life. Yeah. How many people do you think have been inspired 
onto the breadline by Adam Kay <laughs> and, and, and his leaving of the medical industry to have this wonderful comedy and um, and and writing career. But yeah, as you say, it's not it's not an easily tr- transferable thing. So I I can see how it is a tough one to uh, to do. But I want to know. I, I mean, you said you kind of you'd thought out the public response, the press response, the response from the NHS themselves. Yeah. How did all that that play out briefly? How what, what was the response? Because again, it was a time where people were drenched in conspiracy yeah. theories and drenched in they'd already decided their answers because it's their mum's birthday in two weeks and they yeah. want to be out of lockdown, so therefore it's all nonsense and so on and so forth. How how was that? So I mean, middle of March when when I went public and. I, as I was saying, I was, we were driving to, to A&E that night and I, I was shaking when I was going to A&E, to be honest. And I said to my wife, go to go to Gibraltar, take the next flight the next morning. And she said, no, I can't leave you here. And that was the only sort of romantic, kind of inspired sort of moment of, of the last three years for us, to right, be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not leaving you. Okay. It's yeah. like almost a Casablanca type of moment, I felt. Yeah, definitely. But, but then I went into A&E that night and the article had been published in The Guardian and we have those sorts of handover meetings just as you start your shift and everybody just kind of looked at their shoes and, and t- kind of took a step back when I entered the room. <laughs> and we did the handover saying, okay, Mr. Jones has had some heart problem and you do this, you take the blood to this one, keep an eye on this patient. But this we we're expecting, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and by the way, uh, Dr. Joshi, do you mind just uh, coming upstairs with me? It was just like one of those moments where, where you just feel it was it was 10 p.m. right, it was starting a night shift. You just feel like you're about to be taken to the shed to be shot mm. in the back of the head. Yeah. And the AE consultant had been told stuff by her bosses, and clearly there'd been a narrative saying, look, you need to keep this line and just hold the line, repeat it to everybody. And one of the key lines was saying, look, you almost trying to gaslight us and saying, Do you really feel unsafe here? Almost making it like an emasculating sort of weak sort of thing to be able to say, yeah. I actually, if you don't fancy catching COVID, you're a bit, you're a bit sad, you're a bit weak sort of thing. And yeah. I've, I've definitely noticed that. And then they told me, you've got more chance of catching COVID at Tesco um, rather than working in A&E. I said, well, the difference is in Tesco, nobody's coming up to me. Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not asking anybody to open their mouth and, and cough in my face at Tesco. That's mm-hmm. the that I'm not looking at anybody's tonsils in, in Tesco. And they didn't really have any answers for, for any of that. And then the next day, it was really difficult to see. But <laughs> I, I was sleeping during the day because obviously after the first night shift. And then when I woke up about 3 p.m., I, I woke up to about 100 different messages saying what you did was amazing, what you did was brilliant. I got wow. messages from all over the world, WhatsApp on Instagram, people who I didn't know, people who I didn't know. It, it was and there were mostly doctors and medical professionals and nurses. And it was in flux, just an onslaught, nonstop messages, nonstop messages. And at that time, as I was looking at my phone, I was in front of the TV and I saw Jeremy Hunt talking in the House of Commons Select Committee about COVID. And he said, Dr. Nishant Joshi in, in this hospital, he said that he doesn't feel protected. Why is that the case? And from then, it was just a ripple effect across the whole world. People started talking about PPE. You can even I've even looked in the Google search timelines. You can see mm. the it, the the frequency of searches from that day. Everybody started talking about PPE nonstop, and it became headlines. And I was on the radio all the time. I was on TV all the time. And slowly, slowly, the staff in my hospital started to 
really give me a lot of of of, of credit as well and say, look, I, I remember specifically there was there was one nurse in A who hadn't talked to me for three months. A tends to be a prickly place at the best of times, but there was one nurse mm. in particular who barely even acknowledged my existence for the first three months of <laughs> working there. And at one point, she just pulled pulled me aside that week and said, "I thought she was going to give me a bollocking." And she said, "Nishan, what you did was so brave." And that's all she said. And then she just left. I just thought, mm. actually, what I've done is, is something. It feels like it's profoundly affected people. People from Zimbabwe, people from Kenya, people in Zimbabwe, doctors in Zimbabwe, with messaging me and saying, actually, you've inspired us to speak up. We feel confident in Zimbabwe saying we can speak up and say we feel unsafe as doctors. So it's spread yeah. across the whole world. And that's this, just the start of the ripple effect. And that's why it's so important. I really want, want people to understand just one voice sometimes can make such a big difference yeah i think it's such an amazing and powerful example because it is that it's it, it's so easy in how big the world can seem these days or how big the problems and challenges in the world can seem these days it's so easy mm. to feel oh what can i do what difference can i make and your story is an example of what difference literally one voice can make because it can start everything rolling and it can get the attention in the in the right place and let's let's talk about kind of some of the the, the stuff that came after all of this because you and your wife launched a legal battle in the end against the government regarding their their guidance on ppe what they felt again going on tv and giving essentially bad advice again giving them the benefit of the doubt of to try and not cause too much panic but once again, if there's a lion in the room, I'd rather be panicked than <laughs> eaten by a lion. So, yeah, let's talk about a few of these results and what came as the ripples grew and grew. Yeah, and in, in the end, I guess, we maybe weren't all eaten by lions, but we were all attacked by the lion and we we were upset. So so we got the worst of both worlds in the end. Yeah, 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 but completely. I, I, I guess one important point, and I know there, there are lots of steps to this story, so bear with me if there are any any uh, any listeners who, who are about to, to, skip, to skip forward. But one really, really important point from all of this, and I, I haven't talked about it much at all, definitely not publicly and definitely not on, on podcasts before, is that... They really tried to silence me and they really, really tried to desperately silence me and my wife. And the more they tried to silence me and my wife, the more we felt we had to speak up. And that manifest, like, how did you feel that that was most obvious that they were trying to to silence you both? Well, as I started to to speak up more and I I was giving interviews with with newspapers and and radio and and TV, I was at pains to, to avoid saying the, the actual hospital that I was working at because I know that can get you into trouble and I didn't want the hospital to be kind of singled out. I thought it was a, generally a national systemic problem and I knew that would skew things. So I, I was at pains to never mention that I was a doctor at this particular hospital. However, quite a few times there were communications managers. So the NHS has communications managers for each hospital and usually what they, they do is, is they organize emails and, and write staff staff-wide emails and letters and things like that. But over this period of time, they were instructed by NHS England to keep an eye on anybody who might speak out. They were, keep, they were instructed to keep an eye on potential dissenters. And this kind of spread throughout the hospital hierarchy. All of the hospital managers became really, really paranoid. And for somebody like me, I was really a nightmare for them. 
I was really mm. a nightmare for them because I was actually speaking something which is bypassing all of their <laughs> their their instructions, saying you yeah, have to stick, stick, stay on message, stay on message. And there I was going on, on, on BBC and stuff. There was one moment in particular, uh, BBC Look East I was on and I, I gave a, a pretty vanilla interview saying, look, it's difficult times right now. We're short of PPE and this is the situation um, in the hospital. And literally within half an hour of that uh, going on air, I got a phone call from a communications manager. This is about 9 p.m. at night. And they they started they were shouting at me and they said, why are you saying this? Why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? I said, look, I'm only speaking the, the truth. I'm not mentioning which hospital I'm at. So we'll we'll leave it at, at, at that. And the BBC journalist, and I know BBC journalists get a lot of criticism these days, but I'll be absolutely fair. During this time, they're absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the journalist sent me a message straight away and they said the communication manager's been on the line to us and said, to pull the interview all together. They didn't want, they said, you have to pull the interview. And the journalist said to me, actually, we're going to start playing it every 15 minutes now. Wow. So, so it's it's it kind of shows the, those dynamics and say, if, for example, the journalist had been pressured and mm-hmm. felt like, actually, we have to pull this, or the producer had been pressured, then the message really starts to, to dampen down and then the bad guys kind of start to win. But then understanding that there's a systemic pressure downwards on the heads of people who are trying to tell the truth, that actually kind of inspired us more and put the more pressure that we were put under, the more we were asking, what is the truth? And the more that nobody was willing to answer us and the more that we were, uh, we ended up pushing things towards the, the, the legal challenge actually with, with the government a few weeks later. Mm. And and again, it's beautiful to, to see as well the spreading of the, of the, of the load as such because I think there are a lot of people who, if they're speaking to you and you're speaking out, they will be inspired by that. So if then they're told, if they're then told you've got to can the interview, then they're going to go, well, no, I kind yeah. of, I need to spread this and 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 take the response or share the responsibility with you for spreading this word, for getting this out there. And that can be a powerful thing to see how many people will come together and go, no, I, I need to add to this voice. I need to amplify mm. this voice. I think there's a really important thing. I mean, as something I learned a lot as a white male with some level of social media platform was realising that speaking on subjects was was helpful and was mm. one thing of being a good ally, but amplifying the voices of those who are experiencing it is all the more important. And that comes, that is with all the Black Lives Matter stuff that was happening at, at that time, the various different Me Too and speaking out situations, you know, it doesn't add a lot for me to say that's really bad because obviously it is. What's more important is to go listen to this person who's experienced it, uh, uh, listen specifically to what Nishant is saying here and, you know, give that platform. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about passing the mic. I mean, yeah. sometimes sometimes that's the most powerful thing that you can do, just passing the mic towards marginalised communities who traditionally have not had a voice in the room sometimes don't need to really speak actually sometimes listening is is incredibly powerful and just the act of making somebody feel that they're listened to is therapeutic for one it's, yeah. it's decent and it also helps us kind of progress our understanding of, of one another and deepens our own empathy as well that can only ever be a good thing yeah yeah i completely agree and we touched upon earlier the 
the, the balance of change comes from activism and legal action, but also these stories permeating culture, per- mm. coming through in music, coming through in film and TV. And I know that when Help came out, like being cl- close with Stephen Graham and knowing Jack Shaw a bit who wrote it, that came out of hearing from people like you. Jack, Stephen Graham wanted to work with Jodie Comer and they wanted to work together because they'd known each other ages. And they said to Jack, what what project can we do? And that was Mm. the thing that was on Jack's mind at that time. And he spoke to so many different people to do his research. And then this amazing, in my opinion, you, you may have a different opinion having been on the other side of things, but in my opinion, an amazing piece of drama and art came out of that that will have reached people who maybe won't be reading the news headline yeah. on this story on on that story and i think it's it's a really important thing to be attacking from all angles because c- i think mm. all of them come together to cause change oh absolutely it has to be a holistic approach towards change to be honest yeah um and and yes hell was help was a great show we also i mean you, you mentioned adam k as well adam k's tv show was it's also called This Is Going To Hurt, right? Yeah, This Is Going um, To Hurt. Yeah, yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, and that was out last year. And I think, well, that was like a six-part series. And we were all glued to that because it just felt so real and so yeah. visceral as well. And that sort of understanding, it, it does change your... People say, oh, oh, I watch the TV. It doesn't impact. <laughs> it doesn't, it's hardly changing my mind if I watch a, a, a TV show. But, I mean, it really does. And that's how soft power works. And, and that's... That's why governments spend millions and millions and millions of pounds every year trying to convince people across the world that they're the best, trying to convince their own countries that they're best by investing in, in soft power. That, that's why the British government puts money indirectly into, for example, James Bond films. That's how yeah. this kind of kind of cycle works, perpetuating kind of positive stereotypes about Britain, for example. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of ties into to what I was mentioned before about the the journalist at the BBC who actually took a stand and said, no, I'm going to play this even more now. And that's, it's almost like cultural gatekeeping, actually. So in -hmm. in that one scenario, one person who had access and privilege to shaping the news and shaping people's influence of, of, of an impression of what was going on in COVID at that time could have been markedly different if somebody else without those sort of good uh, offices and good intentions might have done, right? So the butterfly effect is limited if cultural gatekeepers are actually putting things under lock and key. And that's why it's so important for, for example, you you mentioned those actors and producers as well, to be culturally competent and, and be really, really aware and invested in culture and society and to make sure that their art reflects what's really, really, really going on. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And that's, again, it's it's all, it makes it seem overwhelming, the amount of things that have to come together for ch- change. I always remember amazing writer and person, Moose Rockwonga. Um, yeah, yeah. Wrote, yeah he's, he's written a, a few books about f- football. And in one of them, mm. he really spent ages kind of highlighting how hard it is to win a World Cup. Yeah, um, the, the the amount of things that have to come together. These players having good seasons here, their team doing good, them getting the right amount of rest, the the weather, the training, all of these hundreds of things. So it's why it's so celebrated. 
when it does happen. It's not, it becomes more than just, oh, it's a kickabout. It's like, no, this is four years of everything going just right and then we come through. And it's a similar thing here, I think, is it can feel overwhelming that we need to get um, the art and culture representation right Mm. and we need to be protesting in the right way and we need to be making stands and striking and doing all these things. But it's all worth it as well. You know, it is a lot. It is a lot and it does all add up. But no one person is responsible for all those things. We're all responsible for a small thing and that's when it all comes together. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And maybe this ties into a bit of what you were saying earlier on about us being so warped with time during COVID and nobody Mm -hmm. really having any idea of timestamps because we didn't have any social bookmarks. You can't say, oh, I'm going to see Pip in the pub on, on, on Friday night. There was just, there was no Monday to Friday. Work wasn't delineated. Then we started to work from home as well, and and that became more of a of a blur as well. Kids weren't going to school, so if you're a parent, then that became more sort of never ending. At some point, I, I became a father during that that year as well, and that just became like <laughs> no end to no yeah. end in sight for anybody. And really, what you're saying when when we talk about all these movements, there's never really any particular end goal for them. The the end goals sort of for you can't really end racism we're always going to have some some degree of that in in society what we can try and do is be realistic about it and say okay we we are a goal-oriented society and that's perhaps why the media finds it harder to cover marginalized societies as -hmm. as well but really i always say we, we should just be trying to head in the right direction and for something like discrimination racism education is a fantastic way to to go about it and again, through through cultural stories, like the more uh, the more high quality stories that we get through these these really good BBC shows, which 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 we mentioned as well, the more likely we are to educate population as well, and more we are open to listening and talking about it on podcasts like this. This mm. is great as well. I mean, this is a form of actually fighting back, actually speaking about this in the open, yeah. which I don't know, maybe a, a while ago. I certainly wouldn't have felt as comfortable as I do now. Yeah, it's a fascinating world. It's really interesting to to look back, kind of, as you said, over the nine years or so of doing this podcast, how how almost revolutionary it felt at the start because these conversations weren't being had. And now how beautiful it is that it's like, oh, it's another podcast. You know, these (laughs) conversations can be had all the time. And again, me not feeling any gripe over that it's a positive that it's far more common that people are talking about mental health that people are talking about political action and all these other things because yeah that's a good thing the more the the merrier you you, you are allowed to say there are too many podcasts right now there are there There are slightly too many podcasts Um, i mean uh, we're gonna have to wrap things up at some point soon but but one thing i wanted to talk about there's two things i definitely want to get to and one of them is you touched upon Obviously, we've talked a lot about the government and we've talked a lot about COVID, but you also touched upon racism. And that's something that, again, you put into your music and and put as part of that. Because it probably is something, as you say, when you step up at a punk gig, most of the other punk bands on that bill or lineup are going to be white men. So, yeah, how is that? And how do you get that across? and, And what's your kind of goal in expressing these things well it's a work in progress i think and i'm still trying to process some some stuff to be honest 
I I just think that I mean I've always really liked punk music and I've been a musician in, in different bands for for quite a while. But even the first few bands that I was in, I was happy just being the bassist. I had no aspirations to be a singer or take the the, the lead in photos or videos or anything like that. Any sort of promo stuff. I say actually I'll, I'll just stay out of this, just mm-hmm. because I didn't think the scene is so is so white. The scene is yeah, incredibly yeah. white, and I didn't think that my face fit. And looking back at that, I think maybe it was sad, but I'm glad that I realized that continuing to omit my face from things was not a fantastic option. And even the artwork for for my current band, Killed Icon, and the photography that we took to to start off with, firstly, I was just petrified and really, really shy to start off with as a front man. I just never saw myself as a front man. And I know, I know you've you've talked about things like this before as as well, or being on on stage. And to be honest, that sort of thing has has really inspired me. Listening to some of those experiences awesome, from, from yeah. you as well, and um, it's given me kind of strength and, and power and confidence. But I mean, I I always try to cover my face when we were taking photos, and I always do that. I hated people who wear sunglasses indoors, but I played with <laughs> sunglasses, and it just didn't feel like a. a a real thing to me. I didn't feel like I was being my authentic self, but it was last year we were playing a show, which was an all Asian show. Actually, it was, it was run by the excellent promoters club, the mammoth at Shacklewell arms in, in East London. Mm-hmm. And it was the first lineup I've ever been on where we had two other bands. So dog Violet, who's female fronted my uh, South Asian lady and myself trying to kill the icon and uh, another guy called Dewan who's who was fronting a band called Teenage Sequence and we were all brown frontmen and front front lady and it was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that and yeah. it just made me feel like so empowered as well to see that actually there are other people like me and I've always believed that you can't be what you can't see and there was mo- one moment I was playing with sunglasses and I I rocked a little bit too hard and my sunglasses <laughs> fell off. For the first time during a show, my, my sunglasses fell off. And then just actually having that simple act of the sunglasses falling off and feeling like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm actually proud to show my face. I've done yeah. a lot in my life. I don't deserve to feel shamed of who I am just because I'm different to what these people were expecting. Yeah. It's beautiful. Those moments, man, I was talking about this recently and, for years of touring, I'd drink, I'd drink rosé on on stage. It was yeah. it was a drink that would get me to a comfortable l- level, but it's not carbonated, so I'd still be able to rap and breathe correctly and all this yeah. kind of thing. And then there was one tour, or maybe it was after my fringe show. I think it was I think it was the tour before I did the fringe that I'd just come off of tonsillitis and I couldn't couldn't really drink. And I did that the first few shows sober. And they were so much better. And I realized in the early days, I needed that wine to give me the confidence. But now I've done this and I know what I'm doing. I don't need it anymore. And similar with the sunglasses, you definitely <laughs> will have needed them at those early shows. So there's no shame in that. They're, they're the things that got you up there and got you through those gigs. But it's great to have a moment of accident that lets you know, oh, I don't yeah. need that anymore. And that was it for me. I didn't drink it pretty much any shows after that because I was like, oh, I'm so much more together and I'm a better performer and I've got better stamina and everything if I'm not, like, t- t- tipsy. So, yeah, I love those moments that make you go, oh, shit, this is actually, yeah. this is who I am and it's okay now. But um, to wrap things up, 
I want to talk to you about parenthood because what a fucking time to become a parent, man. And I think in general, at the moment, a lot of people struggle and have a lot of fear with the idea of of bringing a child into the world. There's so much to worry about. There's so much to to fear at the moment, it feels like. So that happening for you guys in the midst of a pandemic, when you're an active player in this pandemic, or at least a named player in this in this, yeah. in this pandemic, <laughs> that must have been incredibly tough for, 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 for both of you, right? So how yeah. were you as 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 a couple, as parents, and as individuals? I guess how are you? <laughs> um... It's the question I started with, the question I'm ending on. How are you, man? I'm asking it seriously now. <laughs> oh God, I think you should have my wife on next. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was really a, an odd time, as uh, as you say, and. And you have kids as well, right? No, I don't. No, no, no. Don't, no I've got kids. godchildren. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. It was a real odd time to become a father for the first time. You didn't really have the family sort of support which you usually get. And mm-hmm. um, so, for an Indian family, I guess it. I get into trouble for saying this, but it actually, wasn't so bad because you didn't have lots of aunties and uncles coming around every day saying <laughs> you should do this and you should do that. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was something which was a little bit nice. But yeah, again, you, you don't have that sort of social feedback, really. You don't, you couldn't pop out to the, to the shops as often and say, "Look, I mean, you don't have the the, the random neighbours come just bumping into you on the street and say, oh, what a beautiful baby.'" So you're kind of existing in this timeless sort sort of stretch where the baby's yeah. just crying and there's no real end in sight because really you need some sense of of societal normality to return before you can really start parenting well. So we found that really tough to to adjust to, especially with all the legal stuff that was, that was going on as, as as well. It was a constant nonstop pressure and we had to keep on constantly reading and studying and talking to people and listening to to those affected as well. We're listening mm. to, to NHS staff who were really affected by the PPE thing. We did a lot of work supporting um, bereaved NHS families, unfortunately. Right. Um, yeah. But um, yes, thankfully things uh, turned out okay. We've got a beautiful daughter called Radhika, who's nearly three years old. We love her to bits, and she's absolutely gorgeous, absolutely fun, brilliant. And we've got a three-year-old, three-month-old daughter called Anushka, who's very happy and, and peaceful, thankfully. And here in Gibraltar, it's a very small community, and just walking up and down the streets, and compared to to the time we had with Radhika, everybody stopping us and saying how they say in Spanish, que guapa, que guapa, how beautiful, how beautiful. Uh, you know, just to to experience that love and the joy, which perhaps we missed out on with, with Radhika. But I'm pleased to say we're, we're, we're making up for, for lost time with with both our daughters. And uh, yeah, things things are, are looking up and we're still not getting any sleep. We're still not getting any sleep. No, yet. So, of course. Uh, but um, ultimately, this is why we're doing things, actually, Fifth. I mean, when I when I ask my my wife and um, when we're having these discussions, and sometimes you just hit a breaking point. And you think, is this all really worth it? And we would just look at our daughter Radhika at the time and say, this is why we're doing it. I want a better future for my daughter, so she doesn't have to fight for the stuff that I I've had to fight for. I want a better do- uh, future for my daughter Anushka. I don't want her to be thinking about skin color in the way that my life has been dominated by that. I love it. I love it. It's inspirational and it's a beautiful note to end on. And thank you for coming on and chatting, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm really glad we could do this. 
No, I, uh, this is amazing. I'm, I'm really, really glad we, ha- we had this chat, Pip. And like I say, I've been a fan from, from the, <laughs> for the first hundred subscribers. I'm sure I was, I was there. <laughs> so I love it. it's been great to talk to you and catch up, man. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. I told you that was a good one, right? I told you you were in for a good one. Again, big love to, to, to Molly for setting this up. Go and listen to Kill the Icon and just spread the word about this conversation in general because it's a, it's a hell of a one. Yeah. And we've got another crazy one next week. This one and next week's one were two that once I finished the recording, I instantly reached out to a couple of people in real IRL, in the real world. I said in the real world as if that's what IRL means. Obviously, it means in real life. But anyway, I reached out to a few people in excitement to kind of say, oh, I just recorded a good one. So this week's and next week's are great for completely different reasons. But you'll hear about that. Uh, Yeah. This has been the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 516. I'll be back next week for episode 517. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.